0: And in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM and 106.5 FM. Located in beautiful sunny California, thanks for tuning into the Water Zone. Good afternoon, I'm your host Rob Starr, and Mr. Mike Barron is off today because this is our Ag Week. And so we brought in the best and the brightest and the most credentialed hosts to do the show, Miss Inge Biskoner and Paul McFadden from Toro's Ag Division. Welcome.
1: Well, Rob, thank you for your kind words, but I think you really need the uh, congratulations and the kudos after having come back from the Irrigation Association National Convention this last week in Orlando, Florida, where the water zone under your direction got the Innovation Award, the Yearly Innovation Award. Congratulations to you, Rob.
0: Well, thanks. I'm I'm very humbled by that, but as I said there and I'll say it on air and I said it to you guys in person, if it wasn't for all of you to make the show as good as it's been, it wouldn't be there. So my kudos to you Inge, and Paul and to Mike, if he's out there listening, we had our owner's day today. So everybody was off site and I know Mike is probably home right now and he may be listening in, but anyway, I want to thank all of you because without all of you guys, it wouldn't have happened. So I do appreciate <coughs> it. It takes a team and, uh,
1: uh, Certainly, uh, tonight is no different. Uh, we're really looking forward to tonight's show. We're kind of broadening our horizons a little bit and uh, moving outside of California for tonight's show.
0: Yeah, our, um, and that's a good our, thing. I, our, I, I want to see us do that more.
1: Yeah, our, our theme is uh, looking at contrast between the United States and Australian water management strategies. And our first guest is um, from New Mexico, and we'd like to welcome him, uh, John Fleck. Welcome, John.
2: Great to be here. Great to talk to my friends in California, who I all hold to listen. I hope they <laughs> are. <laughs>
1: that sounds great. Well, uh, John, let me introduce you for those uh, in our listening audience who don't know you. Um, John is an um, author and uh, of a recent book called Waters for Fighting Over and Other Myths About Water in the West. And after I read that book, I thought, we have to get him on the water zone. (laughs) So here he is. He uh, graciously agreed to join us tonight. Um, John is also the professor of practice in water policy and governance and director of the University of New Mexico's water resources program. And much of his career has been spent in journalism, focused since the 80s on the interface between science and political and policy processes, with special emphasis on climate and water in the southwestern United States. That's Kind of what we'll be talking about today is southwestern, uh, the whole region, rather than just California. He was the Water Resources Program's writer-in-residence for three years before transitioning to academia full-time in 2016. And in the field of water resources, his primary interest is in nurturing the collaborative water governance needed to adapt scarcity in the southwest United States. As populations grow, while climate change reduces water supplies. A lofty goal, and we're glad that you're working on that. (laughs) That goal animates the Water Resources Program, where he and his colleagues work with graduate students who will become the region's future water managers. And in both the Water Resources Program and the Department of Economics, he also works on translation activities, helping make the technical work done in academia of maximum benefit to political and policy processes. He's written a couple of other books, uh, in addition to The Water Fighting*, The High-Tech Desert, The Great Seacuffing of the West Water, and What Seven States Can Agree to Do, Deal-Making on the Colorado River, and The Myth of the 1970s Global Cooling Scientific Consensus*. And he has a blog, John, uh, Jay Fleck at Inkstain. So, John, you're now a professor, but, you know, starting as a journalist, how did you get so
2: involved in Western water? So I started my journalism career actually out there in California. I'm a native Californian a couple of generations back and was working at a newspaper in Pasadena, the Star News in Pasadena, California. It was covering municipal government and the city government had a water agency and I became fascinated with the water agency covering the simple process of getting water to people, because that's so important and it just doesn't get a lot of attention. And I pretty quickly realized that to understand Southern California as a whole, as I was trying to do in my newspaper work to try to explain it, I really needed to understand the plumbing system, the water, both the physical plumbing that gets the water from Northern California through the State Water Project and from the Colorado River through the Colorado River Aqueduct and through groundwater pumping of the aquifers. And also the instit- what I call the institutional plumbing how all these government agencies come together and I, I came to realize working as a journalist that if you want to understand any community, you want to write about it, you want to help make sense of how it works. You can always start with the water and think about how the communities organize themselves around the task of bringing water to people and carrying away the wastewater and figuring out how to um, use the water. And so as a writer, I just gravitated toward water because it's is a sort of foundational issue for everything else that we do as human communities. Water is a great story as a journalist and storyteller.
1: And it is kind of underrepresented uh, until you have a drought and then it's uh, front and center. Yeah. But otherwise people kind of ignore it, you know, Hey, water comes out of the sink and we're all good to go, but it's not that simple, right?
2: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, trying to help people understand their communities in the ways that get a lot of attention, but also in thinking about the issues that are important but don't get a lot of attention, I think is a really important journalistic task and one that I devoted a lot of my energy to in my uh, career as a journalist.
3: John, this is uh, Paul McDonough. I just was curious, from your initial work that you've done in, in the journalism side in Pasadena, what is the most common misconception folks have with uh, water in the water infrastructure, or is it groundwater, or delivery, or what? In your opinion, what is it?
2: So the most important misconception, and I single this one out because it's a misconception that I carried with me for a long time in my own work, is that we here in the Western United States are running out of water, that we're at the brink of some apocalyptic crisis, and this is a, this is a myth that's I think rooted, you know, in large part in the um, Mark Reisner's Cadillac Desert book, you know, Cadillac Desert, the subtitle was The American West and its Disappearing Water. And and it was this notion that is was widely believed back in the 1980s when Reisner wrote that book. And when I read that book and started my journalism career, I thought it was important. and was the reality that by we overbuilt here in the western United States. We built cities that were too large. We built farming districts that were too large for the water that the uh, the Colorado River and the aquifers and the Sacramento San Joaquin Delta. But there was, we built more stuff than, than nature's supply of water could ultimately um, uh, provide. And that we were therefore eventually headed towards some sort of calamity to conflict and collapse. Um, And that widespread belief that, um, you know, that the apocalypse is nigh because of our mismanagement of water it's something I believed for a long time, and I think a lot of it's a belief that a lot of people carry with them. And that was one of the roots of the my most recent book, "Waters for Fighting Over." Another myth was trying to help people understand why that myth isn't true and how we can sort of move beyond the problems caused
3: by that myth.
2: Sure, it's interesting. It
3: kind of leads into the next. My next question: uh, a previous guest on the Water Zone, Pat Mulroy, who I'm sure you know in Nevada. Uh, said that in regards to Western water, if we succeed, we all succeed. And if we fail, we all fail. You've uh, been focused on nurturing the collaborative water governance needed to uh, adapt to scarcity in the Western United States. How do we continue to collaborate rather than litigate? And could you share some examples of that, please?
2: So One of the most important features um, of collaboration and one of the most important risks that could lead to a lack of collaboration is the problem I just mentioned, the, the Cadillac Desert myth, the myth of, a, of a, an impending apocalypse. Because if people are afraid of running out of water, they're going to be much more likely to hang on to their share, to battle with their neighbors, um, and um, to litigate. I mean, I think here in the United States, we don't actually pull out guns and shoot each other over water much anymore. But litigation is a very real risk and a problem, and it gets in the way of these collaborative relationships, which um, create these really important opportunities for figuring out how to share as water gets more scarce and as far populations grow. And so so the, the biggest impediment is that fear, and that fear is rooted in significant part in this mistaken impression that people have that growing populations in the cities of the West mean we'll need more water. And and it's just not true. And there's this, you know, fascinating data that I use in my book and that I teach my students about and that I write about a lot and motivates a lot of my work, which shows that, in fact, in every major city in the Western United States, in the Los Angeles, San Diego area, in Phoenix, Tucson, here in Albuquerque, where I live, um, in in Denver, I mean, in pretty much every uh, one of these cities, conservation is causing water use to go down faster than population growth is causing water use to go up. So we're conserving faster than we're growing. And, um, you know, you mentioned at the outside the examples of Israel and, and Australia. And one of the really important lessons that we've learned from both of those places is that um, water conservation far beyond anything we do right now in the Western United States is possible. Easily possible. I don't want to exaggerate the difficulties. I mean, it takes work to conserve to bring your water use down. But but we have a long way to go in terms of conservation in a way that can allow us to have these robust municipal economies at the same time as our population grows without having to reach over into agricultural communities and battle them for their water and take their water away. And I mean, so, so you know, the most interesting example there in Southern California of this is the remarkable collaboration and partnership between the municipal agencies of coastal Southern California and the Imperial Irrigation District. Um, and, you know, this is not an easy thing. There is tension. There is conflict in this relationship. But ultimately, rather than litigation, there has been a collaborative relationship in which the municipalities um, meeting. to. Reliability of supply have paid farmers to fallow land or or um, install irrigation efficiency improvements in return for the safe water. Water use in the Imperial Valley is down astonishingly now 500,000 acre feet a year since 2002 or 2003 um, and agricultural productivity up there is growing. I mean in terms of total crop sales the farmers are doing better and better. So we have this sort of win win collaboration. As I, and as I said, it's not easy. There's tensions on both sides. There's continuing difficulties. These are hard. These collaborations are hard. It's not just like sitting down on the playground with your friends and um, kindergarten and sharing cookies, you know, handing cookies to your friends. They're, they're sometimes difficult negotiations. They're tense relationships, and they need to be. People in the farm communities and in the cities need to look out for their own interests, but they create um, an opportunity for Um, a future in which we respect the rural agricultural communities and their um, right to exist and the importance of the value for the people in those communities and then still have water for the cities. Yeah,
1: well, I mean, all those people in the cities that, um, as you say, are are doing a good job of um, using less water, well, they all have to eat, too, of course, and that is the conundrum because agriculture... Typically, does use a lot of water, but yeah. uh, industry and companies such as ours are working to help them adopt more um, advanced technologies to reduce or at least uh, get more crop per drop of that. What is your take on how um, how can we accelerate that process in agriculture, or, or do you think we should at all? Uh, what, what, well, so you know, and then the I think the question <laughs> is, how does the environment um, uh, get in that pecking order too? <laughs> So, so one of the things I've
2: learned, I'm the city kid, right? Grew up in suburban Los Angeles. I live now in suburban Albuquerque. Um, I'm the city kid, but I spend a lot of time in my, spend a lot of time both in my career as a journalist and now as an academic, um, hanging out with and learning from um, farmers. Um, and um, I have endless admiration for the skills and the innovation of contemporary farm community. And... Um, I have a great deal of confidence that they have the abilities to innovate as they need to to continue to be economically productive and feed their families and support their communities and do it with um, increasingly difficult and constrained water supplies. And so, I you know, it's I got a lot. The the farmers are good. What what matters is the institutional arrangements around them, so that we have institutional arrangements that ensure they have an adequate water supply. But don't do that at the expense of the futures of the cities and have these relationships at the institutional level that um, uh, manage the water supply in a reliable way so that folks on both sides know what water they're getting and can make the good innovative decisions to most efficiently uh, use the water that they've got. Um, uh, Cities are doing well and not doing nearly well enough. You know, I love Las Vegas. My friends in Las Vegas are great. They, They could use a lot less water. Phoenix, here in Albuquerque, L.A. Everybody can conserve more. Um, and the environment, sort of your last point, is the trickier problem um, mm-hmm. because it's a lot easier to solve water supply problems for cities and farms if we ignore the environment. But increasingly, both as a matter of sort of our feelings about what is right, but also the political value and, and political uh, power and values of segments of our community who believe in the environment. You know, we have this thing, and and I don't want to call it a new use of water, right? Because the the environment was here before we were, but, you know, for most of the 20th century, we didn't really think much about the environment. We thought about the dams and the canals and the cities and the farms, and we're trying to figure out how to carve out water. But there's to put back in the environment, there's some enormous successes there. And the the recent work in the Colorado River Delta of Mexico, collaborative relationships between the United States government, the Mexican government, and water agencies to do a irrigation and, and municipal efficiency improvements and set aside some of the safe water for the environment itself is is enormously hopeful. That's a really hard piece. Um, and that's the piece that's most at risk when there's a crisis because the city is going to take its water and the farmers going to take their water. Ensuring that we keep those other value, community values at the table is, is a harder piece, but it's equally important. But all this conservation success makes it possible if we recognize that we don't need to fight for water, but can collaborate and share it in these new
3: ways. That brings up an interesting point. You know, we talked briefly uh, uh, as, as we uh, first came on the air about things that were done in Australia. Israel is also uh, held up in high regard in terms of the way that they deal with water issues. Uh, are there things that we as a, a region or a state uh, or as a country can learn from them or that the, the or is the political or infrastructure systems uh, uh, that much different where there's not a lot that we can we can use uh, from their experience, in your opinion?
2: Yeah, yeah. so it's a little bit of both. Um, and I think there are really important lessons from both of those places. Um, and a lot of them are on the practical, you know, on the ground water use side, irrigation efficiency improvements, you know, especially in Israel, um, water conservation measures in both places, you know how to have a house that uses less water, how to have a city that uses less water. Um, There are really important innovations that we can learn from. And, you know, there's especially interesting issues with respect to desalination plants in both places that are both um, important positive lessons, but also maybe some negative lessons. And, you know, we can learn from each place. The governance structures and the community cultures are different enough that a lot of the governance and institutional structures that were applied in both of those places are harder to apply here. You know, people talk a lot, especially about the Australian model and the way water allocation was fundamentally changed in Murray-Darling Basin, and, and why couldn't we try that here? And both culture and history and government are so different in these two places. I'm not sure the overall governance structure and the way they did their new water allocations, really maps to what we do here, which the role of the federal government, the role of the states is very different here. So that may be more difficult. And then in Israel, in some sense, you know, politically, it's an easier problem for, for a really difficult reason. But, you know, it, a lot of what succeeds in Israel is because things are these fundamental, crucial questions of national survival. We don't quite have those threats here. And so our, our willingness to be flexible and sacrifice in the same way that the Israelis do on a whole range of fronts is different here. So, yes, important lessons, but important to recognize the differences as well and not try to try to use the one size fits all. Solutions from either place.
3: Well, I think we, I think you, you could also add to that that the whole water right uh, discussion is far different in each of the each of those three areas: yeah. U.S., Israel, and, and Australia. And that's a whole different kettle of fish.
2: Yeah, and, and one, one of the important and one of the important things is that you know what we have in you know we academic wonks call path dependence, which is we're on a really specific path and built a whole bunch of things based on, for example, our water right structures. And those aren't easily upended, and you have to kind of work within them.
1: Yeah, and I, and I would also add, I don't think the other two geographies have a similar uh, environmental need for water as California. I think California's need is, uh, you know, more than Israel's. Much of Israel is a desert, and um, California has a lot of rivers and streams and mountains. and yeah. um, very diverse. requirements very yeah. diverse. So, um One of our previous guests, Jay Lund from UC Davis, wrote that, quote, Mr. Fleck is fond of saying that the saying water flows uphill towards money is a myth. And perhaps this is true in the strictest sense that water does not necessarily flow uphill towards the most money, but it is also clear that water does not flow uphill without money. (laughs) Can you comment on that?
2: So I absolutely agree with my friend Jay here um, and that, you know, there's this nuance about the cliche water flows uphill toward money because people use it in two very different ways. And in one sense, in, in the sense that, that Jay would like us to continue, and Jay is absolutely right. It's very expensive to move water from the place that it is to the place where people are using it. So here in the city of Albuquerque, We just spent $500 million on a new water treatment and distribution system to try to reduce our dependence on groundwater. So that water is flowing forward money because we, as a community, were affluent enough. We had the wealth to provide the water infrastructure that we needed. So you would not have a Central Arizona project pumping water from the Colorado River up to Central Arizona, to Phoenix and Tucson, or Colorado River Aqueduct pumping Colorado River water to L.A. without wealth. But there's a second way that people, I think, more often use water flows up toward money, which is the idea that rich and politically powerful communities will roll the poor communities, that the wealthy cities will simply come in and take rural agricultural America's water away. And that's the way that you hear a lot of people in rural America use that term. They're afraid of the cities and the cities coming and taking their water. But if you look at the water allocation rules, we have a long history of that not happening. You know, the Imperial Valley still gets more than twice as much water as L.A. out of the Colorado River. The Imperial you know, L.A. is a lot richer than the Imperial Valley. But L.A. can't just come take that water. You know, Phoenix can't just go down to Yuma where you, the lettuce farmers are so productive and just take away their water. So water does flow up. Water Water does flow toward where capital can move the water, but rich communities haven't demonstrated the ability in the West, and we've seen this over and over again to take water away from poor communities by force. And that's what I mean when I say that that water flows uphill toward money is a No, it's
3: it, We've come a long way since the uh, the uh, the movie Chinatown back in the 1920s and 30s uh, uh, with. Uh, with uh, transparency in government and different things along yeah. those lines, and, and just basic laws that uh, uh, obviously protect uh, protect all of us. So uh, yeah. uh, that's an interesting point. Yeah, and in there's the, a lot uh, of
2: mythology. There's a lot of mythology that still persists around that. I mean, people forget that Chinatown was a movie and it's fictional. And you know, there's an entire book written by a great book by by a historian about the myth of Chinatown. The fact that really. The LA water thing didn't happen the way the Chinatown movie myth um, um, suggests that uh, the spill was perhaps not as whatever. Yeah, so so the mythology persists. persists. You know, Chinatown kind of rides on our our Western mythology around water, alongside
3: Cadillac Desert, and I think creating some myth every. Well, they, they've got to sell the tickets to, to those seats in the theaters, though, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And it's a great movie. Don't get me wrong. It's a terrific <laughs> it's movie. It's one of the great American films. <laughs> uh, I agree. Um, so in the in the minute we have left, John, uh, tell our listeners any uh, closing thoughts you may have, how uh, they can uh, uh, get a copy of your book if they're interested, and how they can follow you on your, your blog or connect with you uh on, so
2: on a webpage. The book is published by a publisher called Island Press out of Washington, D.C., terrific publisher. So if you just, you know, go to the Internet, to your favorite search engine and type in, you know, John Fleck, Island Press, you'll find a link to the publisher's website or if you want to buy from Amazon, you know, it makes it easier for people to buy my book, so whatever. Um, Jay Fleck at Inkstain, if you just Google that phrase, you'll find my blog. I write a lot about water issues there you know, and I'd like to put in a final plug for the University of New Mexico and the support the university has given me, because in my new career, I think one of the sort of central missions that I have is taking what I've learned and what I believe is important and passing it along to a generation of future water managers, because these challenges are great. I I have all this optimistic, happy talk about our ability to solve them, but it's a lot of work. And and, um, so I am, you know, greatly in the debt of, University of New Mexico, the Department of Economics and Graduate Studies, who support this work of mine, in part through educating the next generation of water managers, because as I said, I'm optimistic, but it's a lot of hard work um, from here on out. Great.
1: Well, John, thank you for your work that you do, for helping to uh, uh, nurture that next generation of water managers, and uh, for our listening audience, this, um, uh, this interview, of course, is uh, recorded and will be available at... Um, Um, on Apple, on iTunes uh, next week, so we'll pass it back over to you, Rob and thank thank you, John, John, again for um, uh, taking the time to visit with us tonight
2: Thanks so much for having me, this was great fun
0: Great, great guests uh, Inge and Paul, so that was good our next guest, I'm going to turn it back over to Inge and Paul, but it's a gentleman that um, I briefly worked with and communicated with. And he's calling from the other side of the world, a couple thousand miles away in Australia. So I'll turn it back over to Inge and Paul. But I do have one question when your guest comes on, if you would allow me to ask him that when he gets on.
3: Please, uh, please, please introduce him,
0: Rob. No, go, go ahead. You're uh, the host. Our next <laughs> guest is, is Ken
3: Wood. Ken, are you with us? I am indeed. Oh, yeah.
0: So Ken, how's my, my,
3: everything tomorrow?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, we well, if you're up. waiting for
4: if you're waiting for, t- for tomorrow, it's raining.
3: S- send it here. That's good news for
0: us in California. Hey, Ken, I have one question for you. Ask me about
3: tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> yes, Robert.
0: Okay.
1: stock went up and what went down. So,
0: some of, some of your team was here a couple months ago and I was talking to them and I said, and they were talking about beer. And w- one of the biggest commercials they they have out here is for Foster's. And they said, nobody, right. dr- yeah. nobody drinks it back there.
4: Is that no, true? No. I- no, no, I, uh, I think Foster's. I haven't. Yesterday, I was in a booze store and I saw Foster's. It's the first time I've seen it on the shelf in probably twenty years. <laughs> uh, I even picked up a can to see where it was made, and it was it was brewed in Australia. But I don't know who owns Foster's these days. Uh, but. Uh, no one drinks it here.
0: Oh, interesting. <laughs> okay, it's Rob, all... I I, I, th-
1: I think you heard correctly. I don't I don't think it's a going thing
0: there. No, nah, it surprised <laughs> surprised me. I guess it's just a marketing thing that they do. Anyway, go ahead, Inge and Paul. It's your show.
3: Thank you. Well, Ken, uh, uh, Ken is a uh, former uh, Coro uh, micro irrigation employee. It lives obviously in in Australia. Is our uh, invited guest. Uh, just as a as a way of introducing you Ken, if I may, uh, your, you completed c- completed your bachelor of ag science at the University of Adelaide in the late 70s and left straight away to the Middle East with uh, Reed Hardy, and then it became Carl uh, for eight years. You spent time in Jordan, Egypt, in the Nile Delta. Uh, you went to Iraq where you did uh, drift projects for uh, government funded for development of farms and desert communities and forestry projects using water from the Tigris and the Euphrates River right in the cradle of civilization
1: the fertile crescent. <laughs> uh,
3: more time in Egypt and Saudi Arabia for uh, a private uh, farm uh, then off to South Yemen uh, and then uh, finally a spent at the United Arab Emirates uh, in the uh, in the uh, in the Middle East uh, before you completed your nomadic es- escapades, I'll call it that. You left for the U.S. for a couple of years working in Hawaii with a corporate sugar and pineapple company. Then back to Australia uh, to uh, uh, raise money for uh, venture capital for a greenhouse and aquaculture projects, and then uh, took a brief. Uh, uh, respite from the irrigation business, where you ran Australia's largest windsurfing and wave ski manufacturer. Uh, then uh, regained your senses and came back to <laughs> Hardy and Toro uh, as export manager and business development manager uh, for Asia, where you've worked in the mergers and acquisitions group uh, leading uh, Toro China, Toro's uh, most recent uh, uh, acquisition in the uh, ag irrigation space of uh, for uh, for drip products in the in the Chinese and Asian markets. So, whatever prompted you to uh, leave Australia, number one, get into the ag business, but then uh, uh, travel all over the world doing these fascinating projects. Yeah.
4: Well, it's a it, it's a, it's a good leading question. On, um, what got me into it? I suppose I was uh, at university. Um, studying agriculture science, and as you and your listeners know, Australia's a pretty sophisticated uh, agricultural market. Um, and I just always had a, had a desire that if I had some skills, uh, it would be an opportunity to go to a, a country where they could be uh, uh, utilised, utilised better. Um, their, uh, so the opportunity to go to the Middle East was, uh, was one which came up just as I was finishing my, my undergraduate degree. The, uh, the Reed Hardy business had uh, oh, an established business in the Middle East, doing trip projects from the Arab Emirates uh, through uh, Lebanon, Jordan, and Iraq. And uh, so, yeah, I, I ended up in uh, in Jordan, which was a marvelous place to, to begin working uh, for a for a uh, bright-eyed lad you know, who really had never been overseas before to land in the Middle East and be working in the. Jordan Valley, overlooking the Jordan River, with Israel on the other side, and armed guards. Uh, it was uh, it was one hell of an eye opener. But uh, uh, that, yeah, that was. Uh, that, I suppose that was the beginning. Uh, and uh, I suppose one of the things you always enjoy about you you have great memories of your first job. And I think one of the things that I really enjoyed about that was that we were generally working with, uh, I suppose, poorly educated uh, farmers who uh, really didn't uh, have much positive experience in farming uh, and they would have been flood irrigating growing vegetable crops and so we would uh, we'd uh, do a design for an irrigation system uh, we'd help them install it uh, we'd show them how to run it and uh, it actually gave you a lot of satisfaction because you I was often thinking about it you'd uh, meet the farmer for the first time and in my very broken Arabic we'd uh, you know, have discussed about what the, the farmer wanted to do and the farmer might then install the irrigation system you using the, the help of a, a donkey with a moldboard plough to dig the trenches uh, and you show them how to operate the system and start the little diesel pump. And they grow a crop and they sell it and you come back the next year when they want to expand and they've they moved from the donkey, they've gone and gone bought a little tractor. And then you visit them the next year and... They've got a tractor, they've, uh, they've replaced their, their their donkey with uh, a motorbike or a pickup truck, and uh, you've become friends with these people and you see the, the the very positive impact that uh, working with them uh, you've actually been able, to, been able to play a small part in that very positive change in their lives so uh, that must,
1: well that must be so satisfying to help you know really lift people literally out of poverty to kind of a middle class, huh?
4: Yeah, it's uh, it, it really is a a, a, a very positive thing. It's uh, it's funny when you like like quite a few of us working for corporates all the time, and corporates of course have a long term vision to the end of the quarter uh, and how much money <laughs> uh, right. and how much money they're going to make. But when you yeah, can actually reflect and 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 when you can actually reflect and think, yeah, what I'm doing is actually really making a positive change. Now, I've been tremendously lucky in that i've been able to work with in so many parts of the world with very very small farmers often very poor people and have made a positive change i've also been fortunate i've worked with some of the some of the great agricultural corporations some of the the big guys in uh in in hawaii you know hcns and these uh uh, maui land and and time also some of the the very large corporations here in australia and it's Whilst it's always very good to go after and get a big project, and it's how many hectares, it's how many acres, and it's uh, and, and it's their big jobs. That yeah, that that gives you a sense of, of satisfaction. But uh, there's a very different satisfaction when you actually deal with someone and you uh, yeah you lift them out of uh, a subsistence existence into uh, or you help lift them out from uh, subsistence to a, a more middle class, ongoing and hopefully sustainable income. Yeah, well, so, well said.
1: Yeah, that's, and, and what, uh, what a culture shock going from the Middle East and then to uh, Hawaiian uh, corporate agriculture, which is where I met you. And we were both uh, working for Hardy and promoting drip irrigation. And in the meantime, you've now done all sorts of other things as well. But I, I want to ask uh, specifically how you and your colleagues were able to, over the years, get the Australian farmers and the Australian government engaged in adopting better irrigation technology to improve, you know, water and resource use efficiency and overcome that, you know, that obstacle that's always there. It's like, yeah, we know that drip irrigation is great, but it's but it's too expensive. How did you get over that? Did you tell them about the Hawaiians and you know, the Jordanians, or uh, just let them discover it for themselves? Or what was your what was your strategy?
4: Well, I, I think that. It, multi-faceted strategy, I think. Uh, Inge, of course, the the world's a pretty small place, and if you're working in any particular industry, the 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 world is even smaller. So you know, word travels very very fast, and we we would use every every method of you know taking people overseas and showing them what was going on in different parts of the world, uh, just uh, giving talks, giving seminars, uh, you know, giving out information to people about uh, the. the the, the benefits of drip but also I, I think most particularly that uh, that saying necessity is the mother of invention um, in particular in Australia we always say that Australia is the driest inhabited continent on earth um, and quite simply where well you in California know what a drought is uh, I I, I kind of think we invented the word here. We went through a, a decade of it, <laughs> and we've had and, and we've had successive droughts for a long time. Uh, and we've also got some other uh, pressing
1: uh,
4: criteria problems here in Australia. But uh, you know, as you and your listeners know, we've got a, a country here which is uh, geographically about the same. You know. Uh, Size is the United States, but we've only got a population of uh, 24 million people. Um, There are plenty of cities in the world that I've worked in that that have bigger populations than this entire country. So, and (laughs) our our our, our farming's very fragmented around the around the east coast and a little bit in the uh, in the in the southwest. Uh, And so, people actually had to be inventive. Uh, One of the the Factors we've always had in agriculture in Australia is the real challenge of getting labour, uh, and when you can get labour, it's actually very expensive compared with I know what you can uh, get uh, pay for labour in in California and in the United States. Our labour is much more expensive uh, by law, uh, and so people actually had to be creative, and uh, so the the cost-benefit of moving to drip it really becomes a, an economic argument. Okay, it's going to cost me X thousand of dollars per, per hectare, but it means I can produce this much more. What's the bottom line in the P&L? Yeah, I can, I can justify it because I... And if it saves me labour, if it saves me getting up in the middle of the night and turning pumps on and off, yeah, I can do it. Um, and so the, 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 those sort of arguments which... Uh, Help us to, to convince people, and on the on the government side, um, well, governments in the Western world are pretty much all the same. We uh, we have, we have to live with them, even though we don't like them. Uh, but our, our government's also took the position in the last ten or fifteen years that with very limited resources, they would ha- actually have to uh, come to the party and work with people to uh, ensure. More equitable uh, allocation of, the, of those resources, and uh, as we went through a, a decade of drought, the, the the government, the federal government, really had to had to step in and uh, uh, develop ways to uh, ensure that equitable uh, distribution of uh, of water and resources.
3: How did how did that really uh, work? And in terms of, you know, we in the, in the Western US have, have had droughts for the last uh, five years, obviously. Uh, Year droughts were uh, uh, at least twice as long and more numerous in, in the recent uh, century. Uh, as a, as a, as a ty- window of time, how did the Australian government go in and address some of those issues in the Murray Darling Basin, for example?
4: Okay, yeah. The, the um, well, first of all, the Murray Darling Basin is such a bit. It's an amazingly large part of Australia. Uh, it basically covers the, I suppose, about. 25% of the uh, uh, eastern side of Australia uh, and it's where something like 40% or 60% of our horticultural produce is, uh, is consumed, uh, it consumes 75-80% or of the irrigated agriculture water in Australia and really it's uh, the Murray-Darling, Murray is one river, our biggest, and the Darling is, a, is another river. Uh, And to paint a picture, uh, I look at uh, the many times I've been and seen the Mississippi, and I think, my goodness, that's a wonderful river, or the Nile, or the Tigris, or the Euphrates. Then I look at the Murray River, our biggest river, and in comparison, the Murray is a bit of a creek. Um, It's it's small, and uh, and then the next river, the Darling, is even smaller. Uh, I was on the Darling a few weeks ago, and quite literally I could have I could have kicked a football across it. Uh, so the, the government decided that, they, you know, in the drought, they really needed to do something. Uh, these, the, the waters from the Murray, Murray-Darling, not just like many other parts of the world, but the waters had been over-allocated uh, historically. And so if everyone took their water allocation, quite simply, there wasn't enough to go around. Uh, there was also, of course, a... Uh, uh, conflicting or or challenging uh, situation between what we need for environmental flows of the river uh, and what people need to grow crops. And of course uh, along the the, the rivers there are a tremendous uh, number of uh, communities which are almost entirely dependent upon the the river and the the water to grow their crops and sustain the town. So the government uh, undertook, the federal government uh, undertook a, uh, a, a study, um, employed all the uh, wise and greats and learned and produced a thing called the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. Uh, and this was a plan which, of course, would never satisfy everyone. Uh, but the idea was to find a way to reallocate some of the waters uh, within the Murray-Darling system to ensure uh, that environmental flows were available uh, so that some water would get to the end of the river uh, and the lakes and the, uh, the swamps or billabongs, as we call them, uh, would be wet and dried along the way. Uh, but also there'd be enough water there for the communities to grow their crops. Now, this is, this is as you can well imagine, this is a situation where you can't, you can't satisfy everyone. Quite simply, it's, uh, you know, it's Economics 101. It's supply and demand. Uh, And so they they undertook the the plan, and one thing they knew that they had to do was to actually um, decrease uh, the amount of water or take some of the water which had been used for irrigated agriculture uh, and allocate that uh, for environmental flows. Now, we've been doing, obviously, drip irrigation uh, and sprinkler irrigation in Australia for a long, long time, and one of the avenues that the uh, federal government took uh, and I, I go back to the federal government because they actually had to had to come to the party because the Murray-Darling Basin would flow through several Australian states. And Australian states and politics are no different to the uh, politics of the states of the United States. What's mine is mine. And I don't care what's going on downstream. So we needed the, the, the federal government for, to come to the party and they put the plan together and also funded reallocation of water. And essentially in what this meant is uh, if someone had a, uh, a water allocation and so they were using it, they, they weren't using it at all or they were using it for flood irrigation or using it inefficiently then if they agreed to certain criteria and upgraded their irrigation systems, uh, they would be paid for it and they, they basically they would sell uh, some of their water right back to the federal government. So I, I'll give you a, a quick example. Someone might have a a water allocation of, uh, I'm just making up numbers here, of uh, 100, 100 megalitres. Uh, and they, 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 they will actually we you know, we're only using 90 of it. Uh, but if we convert over to drip irrigation, we could grow the same same amount of crop. We'd only need 50 megalitres. And so the government would pay for the half, the half of their water to be given back to the government. And the money that the government would uh, pay for that water would cover any upgrades to the irrigation system. So people would say, people, people, people would say, okay, I'm going to stop flood irrigating. I'm going to turn turn it over to micro sprinklers. I'm going to turn it over to drip. The government's going to get essentially give me basically enough money to cover that cost. Now that's a that's a quick summary of how the system is meant to work. And generally, generally, it actually work reasonably well. Um, the federal government used uh, third parties. To uh, administer this, uh, and yeah, uh, a, sub- a substantial amount of water has now been allocated back to the uh, to the central authorities to be used for environmental flows. Now, I'm sure, even as I speak, there's someone arguing for and against whatever the environmental flows should be, more or less, or maybe they're all right. But at least the principle of what was uh, what needed to be done has been adhered to. Uh, and this is also an ongoing process of uh, making sure that uh, water issues, where possible, as efficiently as possible.
0: Hey, we got a listener calling in. Can we put him on the air for you?
4: Sure. No, All right.
0: You're on.
1: Hello. Hello, Ken Woods. This is, is it, Mike Barron.
0: We can hear you, you right on there?
1: American radio Wave? <laughs> hey, Mike. Hey. Um, you know in. Uh, of course, here in California, we've looked to Australia many times for ideas on how to be more efficient with water, um, and I know that uh, during the long decade or more drought in Australia a few years ago, that or several years ago, um, that a lot of homes uh, involved rain catchment systems. Uh, can you share, uh, are those still... Operational has
4: have Australian homes continued to use those devices to collect rainwater and use it. Oh yeah, for, yeah, for, for sure. Uh, the the domestic rainwater catchment system, uh, we just call them in your backyard tank, are uh, extremely common in a, in Australia. It was uh, in, when well, I when I was growing up, uh, virtually every house. Uh, had a rainwater tank, and that's where you uh, you drank that water and uh, used it a bit on the garden as required. I think as, uh, as society became more affluent and the uh, municipal systems got better, people stopped using tanks. But then in the time of the drought, yeah, the businesses really boomed again with people installing tanks in the house, taking the rainwater, putting in a small pressure pump, using that water around the garden. And there are even some communities where when you're building a new house, it would become mandatory that the, the, water, the water tanks would be installed under the front lawn or under the back lawn. So if they'd be out of sight, uh, you are not taking up any, any space, then the, the, the rain from the roof would go into the tank and then be uh, recycled back into, uh, back into the garden or back into the house uh, where you, people would be using uh, uh, that water. Within the house, maybe flush the toilets or the showers or whatever, depending on where you are. So, yeah, that's this that system is now now ongoing.
1: Is uh, it so, really smart?
4: I mean, and, it, and now it's just now it's very much the norm. You know, it, it's one of these really I find it a very interesting uh, uh, social initiative where it, it actually now just becomes the norm. Um, I was actually thinking about you know like like the US, Saturday mornings there's a lot of gardening programs on and uh, everyone everyone's a home gardener, everyone loves a home garden. to grow roses or vegetables or something like that. 10 or 15 years ago if you listen to one of those programs, they would get an expert on to talk about this thing called drip irrigation and people would, yeah, and they'd call in with a whole lot of dumb questions and uh, they'd go through it. Now, years later, when Mrs. Smith, who's eighty-three, calls in and says, "I'm having strip problem on the roses." The question will be, "What sort of drip are you using?" And she will say, "Oh, I'm using such and such. I'm using two liter every 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 thirty centimeters." It's now it's just the norm within society. But I find it very interesting that this is sort of societal acceptance of a change of, uh, and acceptance of a technology.
1: Yeah, it just takes time. I mean, that's a living proof of it. It just takes a little bit of time. Well, Ken, with your, with your worldwide travel in, in, you know, in agriculture for the most part, how would you compare the farmers that you've worked with all over the world in terms of what do they have in common and what are they just diametrically opposed about? Is there is there anything you can kind of uh, summarize from that perspective?
4: The... Actually, there are not too many things that I've seen that have been diametrically uh, opposed. I can see all around the world a lot of similarities. Uh, almost everywhere I've, I've been, um, the, the same pattern, uh, event patterns. Farmers, for the first time, they they want to go into the drip business. They look and they go, wow, that's expensive. And they find a way to cut costs. Uh, normal human, human reaction, they cut costs. And... Uh, one of the big problems, one of the big costs, as we all know, within uh, a drip system is the is the filtration. Uh, and people say, "Oof, you know, it's twenty percent or twenty five percent whatever the cost of the system. Can't we do some cheaper filters? I want a smaller filter. No, I don't need that one. I've got this one from a friend. And they'll put in the they'll put in the system. They'll put in bad filters. And guess what? They won't get a good result." When they survive, next time they do a system, they put in really good filters, uh, and that's all around the world. It absolutely all around the world. The first time people do, use a drip system, they try to save save money, make a couple of mistakes, and the second time around, their systems are so much better. In in terms of uh, just the the again the sort of social aspects of farmers all around the world, um, I've always found you get the the best feel of what's going on in a farm. It's at the end of the day when you you're sitting you're sitting down in the in the shed by the pump station. You're having a beer or something or other, and or a cup of tea wherever you are in the world. And you're just talking to farmers and you're talking about talk about the crop. And when you're talking about the crop, that's when farmers really become all the same. Uh, yeah. They 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 live it. They breathe it. Okay, they're involved in the. The heat of business and buying and selling and everything like that. But when you sit down quietly with someone and you talk about the crop, with whatever their crop is, farmers all around the world are exactly the same. They're, they 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 want to know what you know. Uh, if you come from somewhere else, they want to know: Is there something yep. that you can you can help them with? Uh, is yep.
3: there something that you see? That-